Welcome to the German Historical Institute. I'm, my name is Andreas Gestrich, I'm the, the director. And this is the fourth time the German Historical Institute invites to a panel discussion on current uh, controversy of scholarly research or academic politics on debates which are relevant to both Germany and Britain. And this year's topic is the relationship of universities, museums, and other cultural institutions to foundations whose companies were involved and profited from the Holocaust. And I'm very pleased to be able to introduce four distinguished guest speakers on our panel this evening. On my far right is Professor Michael Beerenbaum. He is the director of the Sigi Searing Institute on exploring the ethical and religious implications of the Holocaust at the American Jewish University in Los Angeles, where he's also a professor of Jewish studies. He is the former director of the United States Holocaust Research Institute at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, whose creation he oversaw as its project director. And he also served as deputy director of the President's Commission on the Holocaust and authored its report to the President. Michael Birnbaum is also a prize-winning film director and engages internationally in the conceptual development of Holocaust museums and memorials. He is currently working on a memorial museum to, Macedo to the Macedonian Jewry in Skopje. And next to me is Richard Evans. He hardly needs introducing here in London. He is the Regis Professor of Modern History and President of Wolfson College at Cambridge. He's a visiting, he, as a visiting professor in history at Gresham College in 2008, he is now also the Gresham Professor of Rhetoric. Very nice. He is the author of numerous prize-winning books and scholarly articles on 19th and 20th century German history. His three-volume History of the Third Reich is generally acknowledged as a landmark in the historiography on National Socialism. He is also known for his service as expert witness at the Irving versus Lipstadt trial in 2000, and he is a member of the Spoliation Advisory Panel, which advises the Secretary of State for Culture, Media and Sports on claims for the restitution of art looted during the Nazi era. First on my left is Dr. Wilhelm Kroll. He is here in his capacity as chairman of the Bundesverband Deutscher Stiftungen, the Association of German Foundations. This is an honorary appointment. His real uh, job, so to speak, <laughs> is Secretary General of the Volkswagen Foundation. Wilhelm Kroll received his PhD in German literature from Marburg University. And in addition to his professional activities at Volkswagen Foundation, Wilhelm Kroll is a member of numerous national, foreign, international committees. For several years, he was chairman of the Hague Club, an association of some 25 major European foundations, and he, is also, he also chaired the governing council of the European Foundation Centers. And on the far uh, left, is Dr. Jörg Skribeleit. He is director of the concentration camp memorial at Flossenbürg in Bavaria. He received his PhD from the Technical University in Berlin and has published widely not only on Flossenbürg concentration camps, but also on general aspects of Nazi history, on forced labor, and the memorialization of the Holocaust. 
Scribeli developed a new concept for Flossenburg as a European site of memory and for a new permanent exhibition concentrating on the fate of the former victims after 1945 and on the lives of the relatives of prisoners who died or were murdered at Flossenburg. This supplements the existing exhibition on the history of the camp and its system of satellite camps. Scribelite served as a member of the academic advisory board of the Berlin Memorial to the Murdered Jews of Europe and to other memorials in Germany. So thank you very much for coming and welcome. And you see we have a panel which reaches institutions from the Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington to concentration camp memorials in Germany, to academia, to, uh, to Richard Evans uh, for the academic side, and of course slightly underrepresented Wilhelm Groll for the, uh, but, uh, for the Stiftungen, but uh, I mean he is, so to speak, the, <laughs> uh, the head of it all anyway. So, the choice of this evening's topic was prompted by a controversy which arose from a request filed with the University of Oxford that the university should re-examine its relations with the Hamburg-based foundation. The reason for this was the heavy involvement of its founder in the NS system as an ideological and material supporter and profiteer, and particularly in the case of some of his staff, which he employed, whom he employed after the war, as perpetrators of outright crimes. The case did not stay within the university committee, but was accompanied by a public debate in the British and par partly also in German media. I would like to stress right from the start that in this panel discussion, I do not want to concentrate on this specific dispute, the arguments have been exchanged, and it is not our role at the German Historical Institute in London here as guests in this country to interfere in any way with the internal affairs of British institutions, nor is it the purpose of this debate to lay blame with any particular institution or foundation. However, I think this renewed discussion of old problems provides us with a good opportunity to reflect on various wider issues underlying this debate. The Oxford case was not the first of its kind and will not be the last, neither in Germany nor elsewhere. Increasingly, American, French, Swiss and, uh, and companies, also companies from other countries, whose complicity and cooperation with the Nazis and their crimes have been detected are faced with similar demands to confront their past. I mention this only as a sign of the increasing complexity and renewed and growing international importance of this issue and not to deflect in any way from specific and overwhelming German responsibilities. I would like to begin this debate by looking at our topic from three different perspectives. Firstly, I'd like to invite the speakers to look at the current practices and perhaps even formal regulations which the receiving institutions they represent have developed over time in this field. And I would also like to ask whether a similar discussion on best practice has taken place on the side of the donors. Secondly, 
I want to address the problem of legal versus moral responsibility and the symbolic dimension of sponsorship and research funding. And thirdly, I'd like to address the controversial issue of whether companies should pay for research into their past themselves or whether independent research also means that the financial support has to come from somewhere else. We will discuss these points on the panel for about an hour and will then afterwards, after a short break, so you can open the windows for a bit, um, open the discussion uh, to the floor. And I will aim to end the debate about half past six and you are all invited afterwards to continue the discussion over a glass of wine in our library rooms next door. So, Perhaps I can start with uh, Professor Berenbaum. You were the founding director of the Washington Holocaust Museum, and this is surely the most important site dedicated to the memory of the Holocaust worldwide. It relies heavily on donations. Some of these donations come from Germany. What were, and probably still are, the criteria for accepting money from German companies and their affiliated cultural foundations for the museum and also for its research center. And perhaps more wide-ranging, what are, in, in your view, the critical points in this whole debate? Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, let me stress two things before. I used to be affiliated with the museum. I, had, uh, uh, I was its uh, founding director. I also was director of its research. I've also served on the board. I am not a member of the board of the museum at this point, and therefore I represent myself and myself only. Um, just, uh, I'm not a, I, I just think that it's much easier if I don't speak institutionally, though I certainly speak with a long and significant institutional memory. Um, let me uh, answer your question indirectly and then directly. Um, there was an overture about uh, 25 years ago uh, in the, during the formative days of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. A word about the creation of the museum. The museum was created uh, as a public-private partner, uh, public partnership. The land was donated by the American uh, government, and you all know its location adjacent to the National Mall, but the project itself was the creation of private funding, which was then gifted to the government, and it is still a public-private partnership with about uh, 60, 40, 60 percent of it being governmental money, 40 percent of it being uh, private money, but 100 percent of the money for the construction of the museum came from um, private donations and not the American um, government. Um, we were approached about 25 uh, years ago, maybe 26 years ago, um, by uh, a consortium of German uh, um, foundations that wanted to contribute to the creation of the memorial and wanted nothing to do with how, Ger how Nazi Germany was represented, but wanted in certain respects an understanding as to how Germany in its post-war manifestations would be represented. That clearly was an enormously controversial issue. It was a time when 
the museum had not yet become the economic powerhouse that it subsequently become, had not yet established adequate uh, funding for the creation of the museum. And the issue was, uh, do we discuss this, do we not discuss it, how do we deal with it, and how do we not uh, uh, deal with it? And it was a, so a subject of enormous uh, controversy then. Let me uh, add something very interesting, which is that in all subsequent studies of the responses of visitors to the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum and also to other museums, there is no evidence whatsoever that the attitude of um, the public visiting the museum toward contemporary Germany changes one iota from a visit to the museum. The public makes a very interesting and significant and verifiable distinction between Nazi Germany then and contemporary Germany. So it, it turns out that in retrospect, the concerns about the damage done to the reputation of contemporary Germany uh, was not quite um, as relevant as the donors might have uh, expected it to be. Um, in very many respects, I was not surprised by the empirical studies. I had um, felt that anecdotally, but anecdotally, anecdotal studies and uh, anecdotal impressions and empirical um, research are two distinct things. Uh, make a long story short, the decision was made that because there was an expected quid pro quo and because the issue was going to be controversial within our own board, um, uh, the members of the United States Holocaust uh, Memorial Council, and also within the survivor community, that it was not uh, appropriate to receive this money, but it would be appropriate to receive German-based uh, funding for educational activities in other words, it's quite appropriate for German um, uh, sources to be able to give funding to the education of American and other uh, young uh, people with regard to the history of Nazi Germany. Let me speak to the larger issue, what is best practices? Um, and here I speak um, uh, in the week in which, uh, be in the 10 days or so between my acceptance of this invitation and the like, I tried to ascertain but did not reach uh, any of the uh, key players at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum for what its best practices were then, uh, are now, so I can only speak of its best practices um, uh, today. Uh, number one, um, Kenneth Keniston many years ago argued that objectivity in the social sciences is a dialogue between the, um, creator, the creator of the material and his reader or her reader and that the best thing that you can do in the social sciences is to admit your subjective biases as much as possible and allow the reader to compensate for that. Uh, any research into um, uh, authorized research is by its very nature partially suspect because in the best practices, uh, and this goes to deal with the funding of, of corporations, in the best practices that we could have, there should be a distance between the donor and the topic of research. There should be no holes placed, uh, no restraints placed on the researcher uh, 
him or herself, and they should have free and open access to the material that is free and openly accessible to other people. The best example of uh, research that is not based on free and open access um, in a very interesting way is the response uh, to the authorized use of the Vatican archives, in which the assumption using that is that they have put out the best material that they have, and there may be other material there that is not quite as uh, good, and the only solution to that is to open up the, the only solution to verifiability and, 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 and credibility is to open up the archive to allow the research to go wherever it goes, to have a multiplicity of researchers, including people who are what we call in the profession archives rats and can dig out whatever document is found in whatever inner corner and, and crevices of an archive there are to be. So um, the, the, um, and the other um, element is that there is a question after how many generations and after how much uh, time is the source of the funding if, uh, untainted, if at all. Uh, because you have a problem with lots of people who have made massive amounts of money uh, that their source, uh, their their um, uh, their um, source of making the money originally is not quite um, uh, up to uh, stuff by uh, ancient or contemporary standards. You also have, in our case, for example, the Ford Foundation, uh, and Henry Ford was one of the most uh, um, uh, significant supporters of anti-Semitism in the United States in the 1920s, uh, and a noted anti-Semite published the Dearborn Independent, published the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Uh, his um, uh, grandson made very deliberate steps to break with his grandfather, and the question is at what point is a cleansing process there that would allow something uh, to take place, or for how many generations do you not buy Ford products and touch Ford money and grapple with it? It's an interesting and an important and a significant question. It is helped enormously if um, one other criteria is met, which is if the source of funding has admitted their, um, let's put it at least their moral responsibility uh, for the actions that had tainted um, the source of money. If a corporation admits what its role is, the foundation admits what the role of the founder had been, then that, uh, that is obviously um, a source of cleansing and an act of repentance. Uh, we saw this in an international scale with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa, there may come a point at which um, the question of admitting responsibility and admitting what happened, fully uh, being aware of that, is a process of cleansing. Um, that is complicated in the contemporary point, uh, in the contemporary situation, by the fact that certain corporations are um, very hesitant to do anything because of the question of litigation and liability. And that happens uh, not only with regard to Germany, but it, the best example of that in, in other 
elements is there was an easy solution for Toyota to put out to how to solve the problem of uh, a stuck accelerator, uh, which might or might not have saved human lives, but they had two instructions that they could have given publicly that would have resolved the problem. One is to press your button for three seconds, and that will shut off the car, and the other is to uh, what anybody should do, and I give you this advice with all legal restraints, but what anybody should do if their accelerator is, struck, is stuck, which is to put the car into neutral. And that resolves the problem, but um, uh, lawyers advise that to uh, resolve the problem for the public would to be potentially compromise oneself and admit legal liability. Uh, and that um, is the litigious culture in which we live, which is antithetical to uh, arriving either at safety policies or at uh, free and open and fair and responsible and accessible research. Um, distance between the donor and the product, um, free and complete use by the institution without strings attached, to those funds, uh, responsibility that is admitted, all of these are essential for uh, best practices. And obviously, uh, the admission by the researcher of the source of funding and um, whatever degree of problems that that creates, allowing the visitor, uh, allowing the viewer, allowing the reader, allowing the visitor to compensate accordingly. Thank you very much. Uh, Michael Wienbaum, and I turn to my far right straight away uh, to Jörg Skribeleit. The uh, prisoners at Flossenburg concentration camp were subjected to forced and slave labor, first in quarries and then primarily in the arms industry. The Flossenburg camp system also provided laborers to a host of German companies in the region. The Flossenburg Memorial is financed primarily by the federal government and the state of Bavaria. Most memorials, however, rely for their research also on third-party funding. And I would like to ask you now, what regulations does the memorial in Flossenburg have for accepting money for research or museum work from firms which profited from the concentration camps, and do you get do you get these offers like uh, the Holocaust Museum did at the beginning? Thank you. First of all, I, I'd also uh, use the occasion for one personal remark or two personal remarks. Um, my vocabulary might not be so elaborate as it is is necessary for such a um, well important topic. So, but I try to describe that. Secondly, um, today in Germany there is a holiday, so I'm also speaking on a private basis. <laughs> um, as the famous Monty Pythons said, I'm quoting freely now to something completely different. The situation in Germany is completely different than the situation in the United States, and as it is here, especially if we are talking about institutions um, on the place of former concentration camps. Flossenburg, the Flossenburg Memorial, is administrated by a foundation, the foundation of Bavarian memorial sites. This foundation administrates two former concentration camps, Dachau and Flossenburg. 
All the other former concentration camps and memorial sites at the territory of nowadays Bundesrepublik are also organized by foundations. That's a quite new development, a development which has directly to do with the German reunification. But those foundations are, as I call them, fake foundations. They don't have any money. They are almost 100% financed by public money from the federal government in Berlin and more than 50% by the federal state. And this is one difference to the United States, also to Britain, to the UK. This has to do, of course, with a different political culture in Germany, with our federal system. And the former concentration camps were defined as so-called cultural places or as cemeteries. And that's um, in the, therefore, it's, it's the, the Bavarian federal state or the uh, lower Saxonian state responsible. We had, after the Iron Curtain came down, we had a totally new situation in Germany because there were state-run huge memorials in the former GDR as Buchenwald, as Sachsenhausen, um, temples of the religion of anti-fascism, as uh, somebody said. So, and it was quite obvious that after the German reunification, those historical places and the museums that existed there had to be totally new conceptualized. And um, the federal government was seeking for forms of organization. And then the foundation, the fake foundation, the state-run foundation, was the form of organization they defined. And Buchenwald, Sachsenhausen, Ravensbrück, they all were organized in federal state foundations and were 200% sponsored by public money. The memorial sites in the old Bundesrepublik, who were mainly treated as cemeteries and not as museums, not as research institutes, not as schools or educational places, also then had been organized newly. The necessity for a new conception was obvious, not just in the former GDR, but also in the old Bundesrepublik. And therefore, many, many federal states also had chosen this form of a fake foundation. So we get 99% of our money from Berlin and from Munich. I think the, another difference is also that we are talking about not museums in Washington, not about a museum in Israel, in Yad Vashem, that we are talking about crime scenes and former concentration camps. And this also um, points out which responsibility the German state or the federal governments are feeling concerning those places. And this might also explain why we, there are some limits to, well, other forms of funding or donations. As I know, Mr. Berenbaum, the United States Holocaust Memorial and Museum, as the Museum of Jewish Heritage, they're getting a lot of donations from survivors or their families. We get almost zero donations. If we get donations, it's in form of a former prisoner's suit, which they donate for our museum. 
but the attitude is quite clear. Why should they donate to a place where they suffered or their, their family members suffered? It's not their duty to pay for the existence or for the memories there. They are coming there, but they expect anybody else to pay for it. And, of course, as you were asking, um, they, some of them also expect that the enterprises or foundations of the enterprises who uh, had slave laborers in one of the Flossenbrück subcamps or in any other subcamp would pay for it as well. But, uh, frankly spoken, they are not queuing in front of our doors. So there, are, there is a um, certain distance or a very obvious distance of private funding, of private sponsoring our work on places of former concentration camps. And I think we should, um, yeah, we should discuss about that in the, in the public debate afterwards. I'm curious about your opinion and also about the opinion of other foundations. I'd like to give you two examples. Ravensbrück, a huge women's concentration camp where the Siemens enterprise employed had an own camp, the so-called Siemens Lager, and when the educational center was new conceptualized in the late 90s in Ravensbrück, they were asking Siemens, the Siemens company, not the foundation, the Siemens company, whether they would sponsor something. And they got, I think, five or six computers. But the company, company Siemens didn't want to be mentioned there. So there is still a fear of being, even if some of them are willing and have the political con, uh, conviction. conviction that it's necessary, they don't want to be contaminated by name in, uh, because they think they, they will admit they are guilty if they pay for a former concentration camp or the memorial site. So that's one last remark. I think for German companies or also for foundations of German companies, it's a difference. We will discuss that um, this, this evening. Um, it's easier to pay for research or educational programs, not in Germany, to sponsor an American institution or a British university, even with research uh, concerning the national socialist past. It's easier for them than sponsoring those things directly in Germany. Okay, yeah. thanks. For Thank that. you very much. Now we had the two uh, views from the museums, memorials, and would now I would like to turn to the universities, uh, Richard Evans. Outside funding is becoming increasingly more important for universities worldwide. And where do you see the importance of debates like ours this evening for the universities? And how do you think standards have changed on both sides, that of the beneficiaries as well as that of the donors, perhaps? Well, uh, what we're discussing today, I think, is an important topic. It's becoming more important. Government funding for higher education is being drastically cut. And universities are having, in this country, to look beyond the state for funding to support teaching and research posts, professorships and lectureships, and more than ever, I think, major research projects and facilities. And, of course, students at all levels 
are faced with vastly increased fees, which will deter many people from applying for a place at university in view of the enormous burden of debt they'll have to face. So raising money from donations and benefactions is becoming more and more essential for higher education, both in its teaching and its research function. Scholarships and bursaries are especially important, I think, if universities to, to improve their record in offering access to all able students, regardless of their social background or financial circumstances. And we've seen recently how the London School of Economics accepted a large donation from the Libyan leader, Muammar Gaddafi, and his family, and awarded a doctorate to his son under questionable circumstances. <coughs> Money donated by present-day dictators and mass murderers is rightly regarded as tainted, especially if it appears to have been given under conditions that violate norms of academic probity and academic standards. And similar conditions apply to financial support from persons or institutions that have been involved in crimes against humanity in the past, especially if those funds came from profits acquired through the employment of forced or slave labor, violation of basic norms of decency and humanity, the manufacture and supply of equipment, such as poison gas facilities, that's used to commit mass murder against wholly innocent civilian populations, or contrary to the internationally agreed rules for the conduct of war. And there's no doubt that many major German companies and institutions fall into this category. In the post-war decades, companies like Daimler-Benz did their best to hush up the fact that they fell into this uh, category, and indeed that key managers from the 1930s continued to occupy top positions in the company in the 50s and later too. In 1986, the company, seeking to mark the centenary of its foundation, commissioned a history from the Society for Business History, the Gesellschaft für Unternehmensgeschichte, a body that advertised itself as a supplier of professional historical services to companies, and a team led by Hans Pohl from the society duly carried out the task. Declaring their purpose to be the scholarly correction of the one-sidedly negative view of business in the Third Reich in the media, the team portrayed Daimler-Benz and the Nazi years as helpless in the face of Nazi dictatorship, but still concerned for the welfare and the business and its staff, and managed by men who kept their distance from the regime. Pohl's history was rightly attacked as a scandalous example of whitewashing. A group of left-wing historians led by Karl-Heinz Roth obtained legal injunctions to gain access to the company archive from which Daimler-Benz executives had tried to ban them and published a counterblast in the form of more than 1,200 pages of essays and documents demonstrating in detail the company's support for Nazism. Its profiteering from the policies of the Third Reich, its executives' ideological commitment their employment of forced and slave labour on a large scale under inhuman, degrading and often murderous conditions. Reviewing both Paul and Roth's contributions, the leading historian of Nazi Germany, Hans Mommsen, had no doubt about the superiority of the latter, even if he found some of its arguments excessively polemical. Well, that was 1986, but during the 1990s, German companies' foundations gradually stopped commissioning work from historians whom they knew would give a sympathetic account of their activities in the Nazi period. The costs in terms of their public reputation of this kind of whitewashing were becoming too high at a time when the Holocaust was moving to the center of public discourse in a reunited Germany and in the USA, when war crimes trials were starting up again, when Holocaust memorial museums were being founded across America. The massive wave of claims by 
Germans for the restitution of property confiscated by the communist regime in the GDR sparked an equally massive wave of claims for compensation by people or their families who'd been subjected to forced labor and more generally degrading and inhuman treatment, looting and expropriation under the Nazis. If they wanted to be able to invest in American businesses and buy up American companies, then German businesses in the 1990s and after now had to be seen to be open about their past. So one company after another, running into trouble in, uh, uh, in, in the reunited Germany as well in the media, commissioned independent historians to look thoroughly into their role in Nazi Germany, throwing over their archives to them, pressing them not to deliver a whitewash, but to leave no stone unturned. A whitewash like that provided for Daimler-Benz would be counterproductive. And histories of companies like Degussa, which supplied poison gas to Auschwitz, Allianz, which profited massively from the aryanization of Jewish businesses, insurance uh, swindles under the Third Reich, the Deutsche Bank, which handled gold taken from the teeth of Jews murdered in the gas chambers of Treblinka and elsewhere, and many more duly appeared. And they're followed by more recently by detailed multi-volume studies commissioned by institutions like the Kaiser Wilhelm Society, now the Max Planck Society, about the funding of research by the society under the Nazis, including medical experimentation on concentration camp inmates. And recently, it's been the turn of German government ministries, most notably the foreign ministry, where an independent historical investigation commissioned by the then foreign minister Joschka Fischer, published last year, exploded the myth carefully propagated for decades by diplomats, that the Foreign Office had not only kept its distance from the Nazi regime, that phrase kept on cropping up earlier on, uh, but had also been a centre of resistance. At least the Daimler Benz history didn't claim that. The book has run into serious and in some respects justified criticism, but nobody, I think, has been able convincingly to shake its basic conclusions. It's now widely used in political education, all diplomats have to take account of it in their work. So demonstrating openness, I think, has now become essential for German companies and institutions if they're to prosper in a world rightly grown sensitive, as it was not 25 or 30 years ago, to their involvement in the crimes of Nazism. Okay, yeah, thank you very much. These were very clear uh, directions. And I would, against this backdrop, finally turn to... Wilhelm Kroll, and asked the association of uh, German foundations, whose chairman you are at the moment, is formed by many different organizations of very diverse character. Very often they are, like the Volkswagen Stiftung, entirely independent of the firms whose name they bear, and the origins of the funds, of their funds, are as varied as the forms of support they give. Nevertheless, I would Sorry, be. Can you explain what you mean by that? Uh, is the Volkswagen Foundation uh, only, to a minor extent, funded by the proceeds of the Volkswagen Company? I can, I can yeah, Wilhelm can Yes, 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 that's what I mean. Nevertheless, I would be interested whether you could tell us more about the activities taken by German foundations regarding their own past or the past of the companies to which they are affiliated? And do you see examples of best practice? Is there perhaps a collective process of agreeing on guidelines for best practice regarding the past 
comparable to other uh, guidelines of best practice, which is also sort of um, um, uh, developed within within the world of foundations. Well, given the two heads I'm wearing, I should perhaps briefly explain both institutions so that you can clearly uh, see what is in what organization. The German Association of Foundations is a membership organization just like any other national association and it's based on the membership fees of some 3,600 members. That makes it by far the largest association of foundations across Europe. Um, among them are some 2,000 foundations that actively support higher education and research activities. And, of course, with a wide array of very different activities. Um, most of them are endowment-based uh, autonomous institutions, and more than half of them have been established after 1990. I think it's important to keep that in mind when you look at the overall setup of uh, German foundations. Um, and, of course, there are, uh, as my colleague Jörg Skribeleit called it, there are also fake or, I would say, uh, more or less public agencies that also call themselves foundations. Many of you may know the Adenauer Foundation, the Ebert Foundation and others. They are all publicly funded associations, if you like, but they call themselves foundations. So you can see that at least the name foundation has kept some reputation over time uh, and uh, many organizations would like to call themselves foundations. But what I will be talking about will be the privately endowment-based independent foundations. Uh, and among them, of course, you have to look at a very diverse set of institutions. Among them are, of course, grant-making institutions such as mine, but also a lot of operating foundations. Uh, some even run certain institutions or think tanks. So it's, it's this really quite diverse picture, which also, as I will um, come up with at the end makes it very complicated and complex to actually agree upon uh, unified kind of standards and guidelines. But nevertheless, I can uh, point out some uh, indications of good practice, particularly given the experience over the past two decades. And I think it's important to keep in mind that it was only after 1985 and then, of course, considerably more after 1990 that most institutions embarked upon these kind of activities. As far as the Volkswagen Foundation is concerned, it is indeed based on the privatization of the Volkswagen Company. At first 60% and then later on um, uh, another 20% were privatized. Uh, you see, you have to keep in mind that with respect to the Volkswagen Company, which of course was during the World, uh, World War II also producing a lot of armament uh, things and so on, and it also produced military cars after the war for the British Army. And hadn't it been for the British Army and uh, the British government to decide that Volkswagen, the, the whole manufacturing uh, capacity should not be deployed, then we wouldn't have any Volkswagen these days. So it was a British decision that really then allowed during the British occupancy uh, to start the production of the Volkswagen Beetle. And it was, let's say, basically the proceeds from this post-war period that was then at a lucky point in time for higher education in research, you see. There were all kinds of debates going on in the 1950s what one should do with the Volkswagen company because its ownership was very unclear. It was 
no doubt set up by the Workers' Front, but then, of course, it was also brought about by the so-called Volkswagen Sparer, those people who invested a thousand German Reichsmark in order to get a Volkswagen Beetle. These people never got one. They took the whole thing to court, and before they reached the final stage, then all of a sudden, after the Sputnik shock, everybody agreed that this should be privatized and the money should be put into a foundation focusing entirely on higher education and research and focusing entirely on grant making, not on any other contractual arrangements or anything like that. And I think what was really at the heart of the foundation right from the beginning was to work our way towards reconciliation with Israel, with Jewish research communities in various parts of the world, and to see to it that in particularly, let's say, uh, crossing the boundaries, um, particularly also well before the diplomatic relationships between Germany and Israel were resumed in 1965, the foundation was already supporting jointly with the Max Planck Society, also an institution, of course, that was due to the British, transformed from the former Kaiser Wilhelm Society into a basic research organization. I think we should keep that in mind, that it was basically decisions also by these institutions that actually made it possible. Well, now let me turn to the steps and measures taken by German foundations regarding their own past or the past of the entrepreneurs and uh, companies to which they are affiliated. I think given the enormous diversity of the foundation sector, which I just briefly touched upon, it does probably not come as a surprise to you that there is no collective process nor a set of guidelines concerning best practice in dealing with their past. However, over the past two decades, many foundations research organizations, the Max Planck Society, but also Deutsche Forschungsgemeinschaft, many other research organizations and companies have been embarking upon thorough research activities focusing on their involvement in Nazi Germany's atrocities. And we have to say that uh, across the university world in Germany, many, many researchers and leading professors were also involved in Nazi activities. The approaches taken vary, of course, from individual researchers writing books and articles about the respective institutions to larger projects. Several researchers uh, have conducted all the way through to specifically devoted committees and commissions presenting not only comprehensive reports on their findings but also fairly thick volumes containing archival material. As far as your question, Professor Gestrich, uh, with respect to examples of best practice is concerned, I think that many foundations, research organizations, and companies went through quite cumbersome learning processes, uh, and we may discuss that later on. In many cases, uh, it took them some 40 to 50 years before they then finally took it on, and it was often, we have to admit, sorry to say, often a debate or, let's say, somebody rejecting a prize that then caused this kind of uh, research or that caused them to take action. Meanwhile, I think many organizations have realized that it is essential to open up their archives to deal with the respective findings in a transparent manner and to ensure fully-fledged autonomy and independence of the researchers conducting those studies. A current example of good practice seems to me the way the Fritz Thyssen Foundation is dealing with the history of its founder, Amelie Thyssen, and her father, Fritz Thyssen. 
it is not only two renowned professors uh, at Ludwig Maximilians University in Munich and at Friedrich Wilhelms University in Bonn and their research students, but also um, the, the fact that they agreed upon a process of making all relevant material electronically available on the Internet. I think as the chair and managing director of the Thyssen Foundation, Jürgen Regge is here, and perhaps later on he can give more details on this. And it's altogether, I think, an impressive example of supporting a wide array of different studies uh, by I think researchers of high integrity in the order of 1.7 million euros altogether that will bring about, I'm sure, all the necessary transparency we would like to see. So I'm sure that, let's say, digitization will be the future for many of these opportunities, um, particularly also with respect to making things publicly available. And I think that I could even envisage some sort of joint initiative in order to make sure that there are these platforms on the Internet. But I think that's already getting beyond your initial question into future activities. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed for all of you. I don't know, uh, would you like to take up any uh, of the points raised here straight away or shall we go into second round? Yes. Let me only make uh, two very brief comments. Uh, number one, the exception to that is Auschwitz. Uh, with regard, and that is Auschwitz has received significant donations um, for its reconstruction. Um, the um, Israeli government has given funding, uh, individual survivors have given funding. Uh, a tremendous effort has been made, for example, to improve its conservation labs uh, and the like. Um, so there, and there was an international effort to raise funds in which individual uh, Jews um, uh, participated and foundations. The other thing that um, uh, there's a, a rule in Washington, um, which is that the crime is uh, intensified by the cover-up. And that uh, if you don't get in trouble with the crime, you certainly get in trouble with the cover-up. Um, and um, we had a President of the United States who resigned because of the cover-up. We had a second uh, President of the United States who was paralyzed for a couple of years because uh, of an attempt uh, to cover, uh, uh, an attempt first of all to uncover and then a little bit later on uh, to cover up. Uh, but if the crime doesn't do it, then the cover-up the cover does. And I think that um, um, uh, we've seen that um, uh, you know, open and clear um, uh, admission to what had been done, accessibility and all of that becomes absolutely essential. Uh, German corporations have found that in their self-interest. There are still questions where that is not done as to whether they can uh, compete for certain contracts, engage in certain businesses, and uh, consequently, uh, opening up becomes the easiest way to avoid covering up. Well, thank you very much for this. Yeah, yeah. just very, very briefly. Um, first of all, of course, companies and institutions uh, in Germany, and for that matter anywhere else, don't simply uh, own up to their, um, their, their past out of the goodness of their heart. They do so because of public pressure, and the public pressure that was put on them very strongly in the 1990s, I think was essential in bringing about what I see as a, a gradual change in their attitudes from the one I described from Daimler-Benz to 
to, I think, what is now a, a much improved situation. Um, secondly, I think um, there is a temptation, of course, among, on uh, foundations and companies to commission the biggest name historian they can possibly find to write their own history. And the problem with this is that big name historians uh, are very busy people and they usually get their assistants and students to do it. And we've seen this, I think, in the uh, official history of the Foreign Office and its um, doings in the Nazi period and afterwards, uh, that a lot of its problems have come from the fact that the four big name historians who commissioned with the work actually did virtually nothing, as far as I can see, and uh, not even supervising their own students. Uh, as a result, uh, there have been a lot of mistakes and errors in that history which have opened uh, a, a kind of uh, area for those who still amazingly wish to defend the Foreign Office's conduct in the Third Reich and afterwards to attack it and try and discredit it. So I think it's very important to get the commissioning right and to um, not simply just go for the biggest name you can, you can get. Okay, thank you. Then I, perhaps I'll start with the second round of, of questions and uh, so that we can open up the discussion soon. Jörg Skribelaid, when the memorial to the murdered Jews was built in Berlin, uh, it emerged that the Guza, the producer of Siglon B, the gas youth at the death camps, uh, supplied its anti-graffiti uh, paint. And many of you will know that this has sparked off a fierce debate, not only in Germany, worldwide, of course, and some pointed to the fact um, that the GUSA had actually opened its archives, had its involvement into the Holocaust researched, and had owned up to its past and contributed to the fund, claims fund. On the other hand, the Zentralrat uh, der Juden was strictly against employing the GUSA, and famously the uh, journalist Henrik Border declared, I quote, the Jews don't need this memorial and they are not prepared to declare a pigsty kosher. After this, the Degusa Foundation, now renamed Evonik Foundation, seems no longer active, uh, be actively engaged in, uh, in furthering research into the Holocaust or in the humanities in general. This leads me to the question, um, to what extent do you think that the involvement of companies like uh, this in Holocaust research in spite of their professed good intentions, is sometimes causing more harm than good. I mean, uh, obviously, this attempt of the Gusa caused more harm than good. Uh, perhaps you, I mean, you're attached to the, to the um, Berlin Museum as well. Perhaps you could reflect a bit on this sort of symbolic uh, dimension of the involvement of uh, certain firms in, in uh, memorials like this, which is obviously not... Yeah, not easy. Well, you've chosen a very good example, the memorial of the murdered Jews in Berlin. I don't want to speak about the memorial. Well, we had about 10, 15 years debates whether we would need this memorial. Then we had debates how this memorial, after it was decided, should be designed. And now we have the debates over the debates, and one little sub-debate was the Degussa debate, which is quite interesting and very typical, because the Degussa debate directly leads us into this evening, and it's a kind of typical pattern. It's a prototype of, uh, of history, how an enterprise 
with a very close historical responsibility and mentioning the GUSA, I'd say guilt, uh, deals with a, well, with something that was uncovered. Degusa was not just any enterprise. Degusa was a chemical industry which delivered the stuff for the gas chambers. And other than the IG Farben, the IG Farben, the Degusa company was not liquidated um, after 45. It's still produced on. So in the typical pattern, I'd say it theoretically uh, has four steps. That's normality, scandal, public pressure, as Mr. Evans uh, just remarked, and reaction. So Degussa was just chosen because the memorial needed a kind of graffiti protection, and it was the best and cheapest. And it was not Degussa's fault that they were chosen. Um, it was just one of a few firms who produced this kind of stuff. Then some historians or intellectuals or journalists discovered that this graffiti production, uh, protection is being produced by Degussa. And then the scandal began. And, well, I'm in the scientific board of the memorial site. I don't want to complain about colleagues, but uh, also the institutional reaction was not the most professional one. <laughs> Neither was the reaction of the Degussa enterprise. Um, Public pressure, third point, was rising. Finally, they uh, decided to take this graffiti protection, but the name of Degussa was totally spoiled again. They had hoped to have reached normality, and um, after that, as you mentioned, I didn't know that, the uh, Evonik Foundation or Degussa Foundation stopped sponsoring any Holocaust research projects, because... I just didn't find any. I, okay. I, 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 I'm not sure. But here we also have the difference, uh, which Mr. Krull just remarked, the Degussa as an enterprise, as a company, and the Degussa Foundation as a foundation. I, I don't know a lot about the Degussa Foundation. So you were asking um, whether there is, could be a kind of model character for dealing with that difficult past. I don't want to speak in general about guilt. We have one very lightning example, and Mr. Krull is sitting by me, and I don't mention this because he's sitting next to me, the Volkswagen Stiftung. You can't tell the story of Volkswagen and the history of the Volkswagen company uh, without speaking about its foundation as a national socialist company. This was, not, this was an, an arms industry, which from the very beginning um, worked with forced laborers, with concentration camp inmates. And the Volkswagen company, not the foundation, decided quite early, one of the earliest ones, to go to an independent university research institute, Hans Mommsen and Manfred Grieger, and open all the archives and let them write their company history. It's That's incorrect. Okay, just, I, I know there was a public pressure before. You're right, you're right. I'm, I'm trying. They didn't open their archives. They said they'd lost them, but they didn't open them. And there were many things they didn't give to them, and there were some protests about that. Nor did Monson himself actually 
go into the main crimes of Volkswagen. They were left out of the work. Well, we can, we can discuss that later. I'm, I tried to give you the general lines. Of course, it's... The general line was, was that there were protests within Wolfsburg precisely about the bias uh, of Monson on the part of the company uh, uh, and the resistance of Monson to the process of compensation by Volkswagen, which they had never agreed. And so it wasn't uh, a kosher independent study at all. Let's discuss that later. The f well, my view on that subject is a different one. I'm not actually yeah. sure how much work Monson actually did on that. It was Grieger who wrote it. It's a, it's a case of it's commissioning a big name and then it's having Manfred someone else who did do the work. Yeah. <coughs> but I think, I think we could um, come together. That it was a very early study and they opened part of their archives. Let's discuss the details later. Degussa, Degussa never did, and, and I want to finish with that, with a daughter of the Volkswagen concern, Audi. Everybody knows Audi, quite fashionable car, and um, Audi used to be some enterprises before the war. It was Horch, it was the Auto Union, and the Auto Union uh, run they had a monopole on producing tank motors and they employed estimated 25,000 concentration camp prisoners and some more tens of thousands forced laborers. Audi recently is thinking about a new heritage, a new company heritage and in renaming themselves Auto Union. And they didn't want to, um, and they are, of course, as many companies are doing, they have their own museums, they have their own heritage in uh, exhibiting fancy old cars, but not mentioning that they employed some 10,000 concentration camp prisoners and forced laborers. So a conservative journalist of the Deutsche Wirtschaftswoche, together with uh, our staff from the Fossenburg Memorial site, uh, we don't want to, uh, we try to establish, to initiate a kind of this, what I mentioned, this typical pattern of public debate. It's not to us to install a scandal, but there was a very uh, public reputed article in the, in the Deutsche Wirtschaftswoche and Audi now is reacting as Volkswagen did in the very beginning. They don't open their archives to us. They uh, engaged a enterprise historian. I'm, I'm curious what will happen with, with Audi and whether they will rename themselves Auto Union or whether they well will seek for contact to, to some independent historians. By the way, we were asking sometime whether we could get for our, we are organizing every year a, a meeting of survivor, a union of Flossenbrück survivors, and we try to get public, to not just to get public money, also to get uh, enterprise company money. We never got one cent from Audi, although, although we were asking. And we were also seeking for integrating Audi. They have a huge 
uh, huge uh, production installations in Bavaria, not so far from Flossenburg. We, we tried to get them via our educational program to make, if they have uh, new, new employees, they could come to Flossenburg and learn something about the history, and there is no contact at all, not from that side. Okay, we see that. Yes, I just wonder if I, I, I'd like to pick up on the point about the but Volkswagen can, uh, history. My name is Tony. Yeah. Can, can we leave that to the, to the general debate? Or yeah. we had... Yes. All right. Or otherwise we, we run out of... I'm sorry. So I, I would like to just finish this round and then, then we will open it up. Um, Wilhelm Kroll again. I would like to quote a passage from a review of a book written by a very respected senior colleague and international expert on anti-Semitism and the Holocaust. And the reviewer says, I would think that gratefully printing the name of the Ford Foundation in the preface would be a stigma, not a badge of honor. It makes me ask just how much money the Ford Foundation gave to this project, under what conditions, and what was the purpose. This sort of attack on the integrity of academic research occurs frequently, not only in the US, and uh, many German companies and foundations, we have just heard it, which finance research on their companies' Nazi past, seem to do this today with the intention of showing their commitment to openness and repudiation, and claim that they grant their research com teams complete independence. However, Sometimes things are different, and definitely the public perception is often very different. And I just wanted to ask you, how justified is this skepticism, and would it be in fact helpful for a body like the, German, the Association of German Foundations to create an entirely independent fund for such research in order to avoid such conflicts of interest and allegations? Well, as far as the Ford Foundation is concerned, I don't know under which conditions they gave this money. Of course, uh, after what uh, Richard Evans just said, um, maybe there are, let's say, some inclinations that people feel this is uh, also something which is not really a free kind of an autonomous kind of research. But I think if we want to look into this matter more deeply, it's probably useful to distinguish between at least five different modes of financing. Because you see, as Richard Evans was pointing out, private support for higher education and research will become even more important in the future. And it, in my view, it's necessary for every academic institution to have clear principles and guidelines installed in order to decide which money to take and which not to take. And uh, let me just sum up these five different strands. I think the first one is donations, donations or gifts with no strings attached. I think that's, in my view, not a problem for any institution to take unless you would say because of this and this um, deed in the past, it cannot be accepted. The second one is grants made on the basis of competitive arrangements, such as calls for proposals and peer review, where you have to convince, let's say, independent um, peers in order to get the money at all. 
The third one is initial funding for professorships and endowed chairs and uh, involving often contractual arrangements concerning uh, denominations, topics, and uh, the like. There, of course, you have to have clear-cut policies in order to decide for an autonomous university whom to appoint. And if there is a mix of both, let's say, the grant-making institution or the contract-making institution also implying certain, um, let's say, denominations as well as certain appointments, then that's, for me, something which you can't accept. The fourth one is increasingly the sponsoring area, where companies have more or less targeted activities and collaborations and often connect them with public relations kind of obligations for the institution and also often use them for their own image campaigns, that they are associated with Harvard University or with some of the universities of excellence in Germany and use that for their own uh, reputation. And the fifth one, and we briefly already touched upon this um, when uh, uh, Michael Berenbaum was uh, pointing out this public-private partnership kind of thing, where you have fixed contractual contractual arrangements where you have all kinds of obligations. This is, of course, often done in science and engineering for applied research. But... Uh, as became clear by what Richard Evans said uh, with a view to some of the, you could almost say, Holocaust history entrepreneurs, often also, let's say, there are contractual arrangements for writing expertises and reports. And there again, I think, um, this uh, danger of not ensuring full autonomy and scholarly responsibility for the respective person is clearly there. And uh, in the past three or four years, more and more uh, universities have now moved into developing these kind of guidelines for their own uh, policies. Under what conditions do we accept which kind of money in these five categories? I can only point out with respect to the so-called Richtlinie of the University of Frankfurt, a university, of course, with all these banks and lots of other private companies around it, finally coming to grips with this kind of notion, what can we actually do uh, and what can we accept without damaging our own reputation and independence? And I think as far as your question is concerned, whether the skepticism of the public is justified vis-a-vis -vis companies claiming that they grant their research teams uh, studying the respective companies' Nazi past, whether they really grant complete independence. Um, my point is that I think at least in all cases I know of, no pressure was put on the scholars involved to hide certain pieces of information. And I think I, I still believe in the integrity of those who did it. But maybe some didn't do all the work themselves and delegated a lot of that, and that is when mistakes occur. And in these kinds of, kind of instances, as we uh, say in German, or the proverb is, Wes brot ich es, das Lied ich sing. I think you have this with who pays for the piper calls for the tune. And this impression immediately comes up when mistakes are made, when documents are omitted, when all kinds of things are left out. Um, and that's why I think we have to thoroughly rethink and probably also reconfigure the mode of financing these kind of things. Um, and we have to make sure that this is done in a truly independent and transparent manner. And um, I think 
that um, it is probably inevitable to see to it that the research on these sensitive issues related to, I would say, even for, to the first half of the 20th century, that these are not supported by the institutions themselves unless they make clear, as the Thyssen Foundation has done, in my view also the Töpfer Foundation has done, that they are not interfering in anything. But if a company or a foundation that has no experience in research funding, and you should keep in mind that it's just about 13 to 14% of all foundations that support higher education and research. The rest is not. It's important that you have a professionally based and experienced staff to actually do the selection for these kind of things. And uh, I can only give one example, uh, which occurred quite recently. Two years ago, we went into talks with such a foundation that has no research experience. And uh, we agreed upon supporting not only this kind of research, but also seeing to it that a research team is being set up that is really up to the challenge and that is really able, let's say, to come up also with all kinds of things that may not or may still not be, let's say, liked by the institution itself. And also one of the conditions was, like with the case of Tusson Foundation, that all the documents will be put on the Internet so that everything is available not only to um, researchers but also to the public at large so that they can have a look at what was at stake and what was actually dealt with. So I think not only in this respect, competence, commitment and uh, credibility must go hand in hand. And that's why I think it's so important that um, things that are related to one's own institution are not um, supported in a way of commissioned research by the institution itself. Well, thank you very much. Perhaps we stay in the academic field and then go um, uh, again to Michael B. And uh, Richard, as a historian, how do you see this problem? I mean, you're for, you, yes, you're for him. No, you, you okay. first. And, All right. Um, As a historian, how do you see this problem of commissioned research? I mean, you've already touched on it, that it is very problematic. Uh, but on the other hand, one could say, is it perhaps part of a necessary uh, process of institutional remembering that uh, these uh, companies actually acknowledge their responsibility by, uh, uh, by financing research? And Again, from your point of view, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you will agree with some, uh, some things which Wilhelm Kuhl has said. What are, are the prerequisites that such money should be accepted uh, for commissioned works? Okay, well, I, there's always a debate, of course, about how to deal with past crimes and their perpetrators uh, in, in public memory. Because and, and, on the one hand, people obviously want to destroy hated symbols of, of mass murder and oppression. On the other hand, of course, getting rid of them means uh, runs the risk of forgetting them. Uh, an example of this is obviously the Berlin Wall, which was torn down just as statues of Stalin were being torn down all across Eastern Europe. And now I, I noticed uh, a few days ago when I was in Berlin, uh, a large section of it is actually being rebuilt as a memorial to those who perished trying to cross it or were confined by it in, in the, the, the uh, GDR. And the dilemma, I think, is encapsulated in the contrasting policies of two governments, the secret police files compiled on citizens under communist rule. In Hungary, the government is proposing to allow those citizens to go to the police archive, remove the files kept on themselves, and destroy them. 
While in Germany, the government gives people access but preserves the files for posterity under conditions that don't violate people's right to privacy. Um, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm all for remembering rather than forgetting. <clears throat> I think some companies, obviously, and foundations change their name, perhaps to avoid identification with the past. I mentioned the Kaiser Wilhelm Society became the Max Planck Society. The De Gusser Foundation became the Evonik Foundation. But in the end, this doesn't prevent people from recognizing the continuities. Um, so it's, I think it's futile. But in remembering, I think the conditions for remembering need to be got right, and that's really difficult. Companies involved in carrying out the Holocaust or complicit in the crimes of Nazism surely do need to atone for their deeds. And that goes to the foundations that use their name. They have a special duty to support humanitarian activities and to engage self-critically in the exercise of remembering. But they've also got to be alive to the sensitivities of potential recipients of their largesse. It would be wrong for a company that had produced poison gas in the Nazi era to fund concentration camp memorial sites, or for that matter, um, uh, Jewish, uh, to, to, to fund, I, mean, I think it's wrong, uh, that De Gusser, uh funded part of the, the Jewish memorial um, uh, in, in, in Berlin. Uh, as Michael Barrowman said, um, uh, the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in the end rejected uh, German Foundation's money because it was tied to conditions um, uh, and, but instead persuaded the foundations to fund students and graduate research into the Nazi period. So you have to be, I think it has to be a lot of sensitivity about what, who, who funds what. And if, uh, commission, if research is commissioned on a company or foundation's own past, then it obviously has to be carried out under conditions of complete freedom of access to the relevant document, documentation. Um, the archives have to be open. There's no, I mean, the, the authors of the official history of the Foreign Office have complained without actually supplying any specific evidence that, that certain parts of the archive were uh, withheld from though, though uh, goodness knows, I mean, their report was damning enough, but uh, there mustn't be any, any restriction at all. Uh, in, in the archives must be thrown open. There's got to be no inter interference in the interpretation the historians put on the documents they find. And there's all of this. Uh, this in addition, um, the, the historians have to be free to publish anything. Uh, when you sign the contract, I mean, I haven't done this with a company myself, but uh, if I were asked, I mean, one of the first things uh, would be to sort out copyright. Uh, it's very important that the company or foundation does not claim copyright on its own documents as far as the historian who's writing them up is concerned, or it, it can prevent them from being, being released. Uh, uh, there has to be total freedom, and, and there has to be very careful um, legal stipulations that ensure that is possible. It is not true, I'm afraid, uh, that, uh, uh, as Mr. Krull said, that, for example, the Tupfer Foundation did not interfere in its history it commissioned. Uh, it, it, there was an attempt made to uh, amend or alter one of the contributions to the official history, which is thought to be uh, extremely uh, excessively critical. And the historian concerned, Christian Gerlach, did absolutely the right thing, which was to threaten to publish it elsewhere, uh, and uh, the foundation caved in. So I think historians have to be tough when they're put under, under pressure. Um, the, uh, if the historian's independent and professionally trained, it should always be possible to abstract himself or herself from what would seem to be the interests of the commissioning body. It's not always easy, but I think if you're a professional historian, you ought to be able to do it. Let me give an example from my own life. 
which is how it's commissioned about 11 years, 12, 13 years ago, to provide an expert witness report for the defence in the libel case brought by David Irving against Deborah Lipset and Penguin Books involving Holocaust denial. I was able to act without any interference from the lawyers. Well, not quite true. Uh, I, they gave me one piece of advice, which is uh, when I was on the witness stand being cross-examined by Irving, don't drink too much water or you might have to ask for a comfort break in the middle of a two-and-a-half-hour cross-examination, and that's rather embarrassing. But otherwise, otherwise, no interference at all. My independence was guaranteed by the fact I was paid by the hour, not by results. So the defence couldn't turn around and say, sorry, if, if I'd found that Irving was a wonderful historian and Lipstadt was talking nonsense, uh, they couldn't say, sorry, you can't get your money. Um, and uh, the defence had the right not to present my report if it regarded its conclusions as being contrary to its case. And, of course, I had to swear an oath and write an affidavit that I was acting uh, absolutely object, objectively without any, and this is all down in writing, uh, without any reference to who was, was paying me. And in the event, in fact, I found that one of Lipstadt's allegations against Irving was not justified and said so. Then I found the others were. If I found more unjustified allegations, I would have said so. And in the case of another witness, in the case Christopher Browning, Mr. Irving tried to demonstrate bias because Browning was also paid by the defence and had also been the recipient of a grant from an Israeli government foundation. It was therefore, he said, an Israeli agent. Uh, Browning pointed out that he'd also been a recipient of grants from the German and American governments, so he must be a German and American agent as well, and that, in his uh, gentleman, ironic way, disposed of that. It's what you might call the tactic of trying to establish bias by association, and it was completely dismissed by the court, and rightly so. In the end, I think, you have to demonstrate bias if it's there by examining the work itself. Historical research has to be assessed on its own merits. It can't be discredited by factors such as who wrote it or who paid for it or what the author might have done in the past. These might help explain it. You have to actually tackle it in its own right. So in the case of Hans Pohl's whitewashing history of Dunblad Bents, what was crucial was not fact that it was commissioned by the company, so much as the fact that it was written by a self-appointed leading representative of an organization dedicated to furthering the interests of business. So the company knew, even before it commissioned him, that it could expect sympathetic treatment, and it knew, in other words, that he was not truly independent. And I don't think this is the case with independent specialist historians, whatever the merits and demerits of their work or their modus operandi of Hans Moms and Peter Hayes or the late Gerald Feldman. Um, Hayes and Feldman, in particular, very rec relatively recently, have, uh, have, have written commissioned histories that turned out to be highly critical of the companies they, they dealt with. And in the case of the recent officially commissioned history of the German Foreign Office, criticisms actually go beyond, in some cases, what the evidence warrants. Uh, in the end, I think we can't and shouldn't escape the past. Universities and researchers need to scrutinize donations very carefully. Those who receive scholarships and benefactions need to be fully informed about the source of their funding. I think that's very important. And this places a special burden of duty on the funding bodies. Very few companies, governments, or institutions are totally without responsibility for some kind of misdeed in the past, though some have a lot more than others. Uh, you might mention the Rhodes Trust in Oxford, uh, for example. Uh, the funding of critical research, I think, is one way they can contribute towards acknowledging this responsibility. Um, and it's not just for the, the way the institution is regarded in the world at large, but it's also very important for the way the institution understands itself and grasps the exact 
dimensions of its responsibility to the past. Uh, and I'd just like to add one, one comment again on what, what Mr. Krull said, which is that his second mode of funding, which is grants, uh, which are competitive grants. Um, this is not exactly uh, what we're talking about today, but it's, it's important to note that there's an increasing tendency on the part of governments to uh, reduce the number of grants uh, that it gives out through its funding bodies, through research councils and the like, to what's called the response mode, as I say, you dream up some research and you apply for money for it, um, and an increasing tendency to set uh, what, to dictate what kinds of research are done, to have thematic priorities uh, to express its, their own interests in what it asks, um, uh, what it asks uh, historians and others to, to do. And I think that's a tendency uh, that would very rightly arouse uh, enormous uh, public criticism if it was being done by private foundations. But we also have to be very aware of these tendencies in government too. Okay, thank you very much. And I would like, finally like to return to the uh, part of the memorials. And uh, Michael Birnbaum, you developed concepts for Holocaust memorials and education centers worldwide. And most recently for the new memorial in Skopje for the Macedonian Jewry. The costs for this uh, centre are, if I'm informed right, are primarily covered by a special fund created from the assets of Macedonian Jewish families who perished in the Holocaust and left no heirs. And I would like to ask, how important do you think is independent Jewish funding for this project and or how important for Holocaust memorialization? And education is, in fact, the confrontation of victims and their heirs with the perpetrators and their descendants in common projects. And what role would you attribute to German industrial foundations in that case in such an international process of preserving and building sites of memory and conducting Holocaust education and research? And how many weeks have you given me to answer that? <laughs> Um, let me touch on one thing before I, I respond to your question. Um, I think it'd be interesting for you to know that um, one of the things we did in the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum was to examine the role of the American government. And um, uh, indeed, there was no interference whatsoever from the American government in any which way, manner, or form in the way in which the American role uh, uh, during the Holocaust was portrayed. And um, when we had a question being raised on it, we had two very interesting things. Number one, we held a public forum in which defenders of Franklin Delano Roosevelt had their opportunity to speak, and uh, those who were less uh, defensive in support of Franklin Delano Roosevelt had the opportunity to respond. And we used the controversy itself as an opportunity to explore the issue publicly. If anything, we received uh, public pressure when uh, an interesting document surfaced that changed our perception of the question of the bombing of Auschwitz. And the document was interesting because it was a, a June 11th uh, decision of the Jewish agency not to request that Auschwitz be bombed. And consequently, uh, as this document surfaced, we had to re-examine the role of anti-Semitism, presuming that you could accept that David Ben-Gurion, as an operating principle, that David Ben-Gurion was not 
uh, a noted anti-Semite and was not uninterested in the fate of uh, Jews in Europe, then the question became what was the role of anti-Semitism. And again, uh, as the attack took place, we brought it inside, let both um, uh, protagonists on both sides have their say, and in a very uh, deep way used it to enrich uh, the academic debate. And we also had a, a, a lovely occasion in which we brought together um, uh, historians of the military with Holocaust historians. There had been a dialogue that had gone like this, in which both sides had spoken past uh, each other, and the end result was uh, um, uh, a book that others could characterize as a reasonably fair and balanced treatment of the question of the bombing of Auschwitz, uh, which I co-edited with uh, somebody from the uh, Air and Space Museum. So uh, public institutions face that question. One final point before I get to your question, which is transparency is the best medicine. Open it up, allow everybody access, uh, and good history, I'm convinced over time, good history drives out bad history. And um, uh, good history by the, and accessibility is also the great um, prophylactic against historians not doing their job because they understand that their reputations are going to be at stake in the future if there is accessibility uh, to everyone. I refused particular access when we were dealing with the issue of um, uh, the Armenian um, uh, genocide. I uh, refused uh, uh, access that was not going to be open and public to other historians to the Turkish archives because I presumed that I would be fed the material that they wanted me to see and the only, the only defense against that is to make it open and available and accessible uh, and the like. Um, just w one word about um, um, Macedonia. Macedonia it was, it is interesting in, in um, one uh, unique way, which is that um, the government has a particular stake. The Jewish community is uh, the only minority community. It is so small. It is 200, where once there had been 7,200. It's the only minority that makes no public demands of the government itself because it's so small a number. Consequently, the government is very interested in seeing this as a way of getting into multicultural uh, education and as an example of uh, the need for pluralism and tolerance and mutual acceptance. They also have the great advantage uh, uh, that the murderers were, the, the um, instrumentality of murder was, were the Bulgarians and the actual murder was conducted by the Germans, there is also one other aspect of the project that's quite unique, which is this is the only Jewish community in the world which is in the uh, unprecedented and enviable position that its resources exceed its needs. And um, uh, there may be other Jewish communities like that, but none of them have been open uh, about that uh, circumstances, and they were received the property in return for making a gift uh, to the government. Look, um, and this is interestingly enough not a memorial that's going to be built by survivors because there were no uh, the only survivors of Bulgaria were those who had escaped 
or those who had gone into the partisans. There were no Bulgarian, there, there were no uh, Macedonian survivors of Treblinka, and consequently, it is built by the generations after uh, who are uh, doing that. Uh, what we find in creating a memorial is that, uh, number one, I find that the third generation of Germans, it's not a confrontation, it's a dialogue. There is a mutual traumatization by the same event, and um, there is a, a dramatic change in generations in Germany in the willingness to confront the past, which correlates to the interest of the world in confronting the past. But uh, even if you disagreed with the um, work of uh, Daniel Jonah Goldhagen, you had to be deeply impressed by the dialogues that occurred throughout the German universities with regard to Goldhagen, and they were far less critical of Goldhagen than the American researchers uh, were, and far more open to um, his um, accusations and his findings. So there is a generational difference. We don't regard it as a confrontation. We do regard it as a dialogue, and the very interesting thing is that the third generation is willing to ask questions and remember things that the second generation was for, uh, too polite to ask, and the first generation developed a wonderful case of uh, what we jokingly call Waldheimer's disease, which is selective amnesia, forgetting where you were from the moment that German occupation <coughs> began until liberation. Uh, took place. It's a selective form of, 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 um, of forgetfulness. The only medicine of, uh, against uh, is the real work of remembering and the real work of history. Last point, look, good historians who are mindful of their reputation and who want to be protective of their reputation do their work and um, it, it, you don't rent your reputation, it's one of the very few, and you don't rent your integrity, it's one of the very few assets that uh, historians have, and it should be protected and preserved. And the best guarantee of good history, and by the way, the same problem that occurs in the sciences. We had a Nobel Prize winning scientist by the name of David Baltimore, who. Uh, was president of a major university who didn't follow the work of his students, signed his name to it, and um, uh, used his prestige originally uh, to make sure that his work was not challenged and destroyed an absolutely brilliant and creative career because he had not done the work and he covered up. The cover-up kills um, almost more surely than the original crime. Well, thank you very much. This is the end of our panel. It was a bit longer than we <laughs> intended it to be. Um, I think we shortened the break briefly and, and go in five minutes into, an, uh, into the general discussion and just to be able to open the windows briefly. So, but first of all, I would like to thank all the panelists very much for their contributions and uh, we'll reassemble in a few minutes. <laughs>